Welcome to the Rock of Ages Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Duke Backus. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit rockofagesaog.org. Tonight I feel impressed upon my heart to, to speak of discipline. Amen? How many of you know that we need discipline? Raise your hand if you know that we need discipline. If you don't think you need discipline, then this message is for you. Amen. Amen. I'll be nice to you, I promise. Okay? It's not, it's not that mean of a message. I, I, I can assure you that. But in speaking of discipline, I want us to understand several things. I think we have to first understand what discipline means. The root word of discipline is actually the word disciple. So you can write that down. Amen? The root word of discipline is the word disciple. A disciple is a student or a follower of some doctrine or teacher. Say it one more time. A disciple is a student or follower of some doctrine or teacher. And so discipleship in the Bible is defined in Matthew chapter 5 during the Sermon on the Mount. We see that Jesus, he goes and he's, he calls uh, his disciples to the hillside and he, he calls them up to, to, to meet with him. And, and the posture that they take is they go to Jesus on this hillside, they respond to the call and they sit at his feet and he begins to teach the crowds. They sit at his feet and he begins to teach the crowd. Now, you may remember a story in Luke chapter 10. It's that story of Mary and Martha. Now, how many of you have read that story before? Amen. You know that Jesus was passing through their town and he was this invited guest of honor. Now, how many of you know if Jesus is coming to your house, you're probably going to want to tidy up. Amen. If Jesus is going to show up to your house, you're probably going to want to get the meal nice and hot. You're going to want to... Make things ready because this is Jesus. So here we see that, you know, Martha does what a lot of us would do, and that is she's doing all of the preparations. She's, I'm sure, you know, windexing the window, and she's sweeping, and she's making sure that, you know, the clothes are put away, and she's, she's doing good things that, that any hostess would do when they know an important guest is about to arrive. And so she's getting everything ready in order to impress Jesus, but we see that her sister Mary does something else, and she takes a posture, and she sits at the feet of Jesus. So Jesus arrives in their home, and, and, and you've got one sister who's sitting in front of Jesus, and you have the other sister who's, you know, baking and cleaning and doing all this other stuff, and, and she gets upset. Now, how many of you don't like to do things on your own? Amen? You know, uh, you know, I can maybe speak to the married couples tonight. You know, it's like, you know, if you're cleaning the house, you know, you want everybody to pitch in. You know, if, if you're not married, but, you know, you know, you're just a child living at home, you know, with your family, your parents. How many of you know that when mom or dad starts cleaning, you know, you better get to cleaning too. Amen? That's just kind of the, the, the law of the land, you know. And so we never like to do things on our own, but we see that... Martha gets really upset because she's doing everything on her own. And Jesus reminds her that her frustrations, they're not valid. How many of you sometimes feel like your frustrations are valid? But the Lord actually puts you in your place and reminds you that that's not really important. We like to make things always about us and less about the one that's in front of us. 
We're so quick to be those kind of people that it's like, oh, well, nobody helped me and nobody did this for me and nobody was there when, when I needed them and blah, blah, blah. And we, we can go on and on and on. And guess what? You know what? I get it. I get it. I understand. I'm compassionate. I, I see where you're coming from. But Jesus in Luke 10 and 42, he's telling Martha and he says this. He says, few things are needed, he said, or indeed only one. And Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. She is sitting at the feet of Jesus, my friends. He has not yet been resurrected. He's not yet been crowned in glory, but she knows who he is. And she takes the rightful posture to sit at the feet of Jesus. She knows the one that is before her, and she doesn't want to do anything else but bow down before him and listen to whatever he has to say. You know, in our culture, church, our culture wants you always to be wrapped up in busyness. There's a lot of people that maybe didn't make it to church tonight because they're busy. Amen. I'm glad you're here, though. You got your priorities straight. Amen. If you guys are watching online, God bless you. I love you still. All right. I, that was my caveat. I got myself out of in trouble. But our culture wants us to be wrapped up in busyness because somehow it equates to significance. The difference, though, is this. Is one points to oneself instead of sitting in front of the one who deserves to be heard. Busyness is often about making you appear like you're significant or you're more than or you're, you know, all that and all that stuff. Busyness is most appealing, listen to me carefully, to those who feel the need to feel significant. Martha somehow misunderstood the assignment and that was to sit. She misunderstood the assignment and she, 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 took her mind off where she was supposed to be and who was in front of her. She misunderstood the assignment to sit with the need to impress. I say this because I believe it's, it's, it's very relevant, it's very practical that we can understand something, you know, we, you know, everything that we do. And I thank God that, you know, I'm a member of the worship team. It's something I, I love doing. I, I've done it for years and all that. But guess what? Don't look at me. I'm not here to impress you. I've had people tell me, oh, you, you, you do such a great job when you do that. No, 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 it ain't, it ain't about me. If I had it my way, there probably would be a black wall in front of me and you may just hear some sound. Why? Because I don't feel any more significant when I'm there or when I'm here. This doesn't give me significance. Sitting at the feet of the one who died for me does. Because I know in that place who I really am and who I am called to be. Dare I say that some of you are doing to be seen rather than sitting to be shown. Nowadays, and I love, I love you know, nowadays we have so many wonderful things. And social media just so happens to be a wonderful thing. I believe it can be used for the glory of God. But Jesus said that our good deeds, you know, of our good deeds, to not let our right hand know what our left hand is doing. What do I mean by that? Why do I make reference to that? Because I believe, church, in a culture that lives on social media, we feel the need to show what is supposed to be secret. 
We feel the need always to, to show and to say, you know, what, what God actually gave just for us. For those of you that are married or, or you have, you know, important relationships, one of the things that, that, you know, you can draw from a good relationship is knowing that you've, when you confide in a person that they are a confidant, you can trust them with the information that you gave them, Yes? And that brings value to a relationship because you know that, hey, you know what, I, I shared something intimate or personal with this, this individual so that they could pray about me or, or for me. And I didn't share it because, you know, I want them to gossip about me in front of the whole church. But I gave them some piece of me so that they could go to the Lord on my behalf. But a lot of times in the culture that we're living in, people are doing to be seen. The Bible teaches us, church, that when we are to pray, what are we to do? We are to go into our room, we're to close the door, we're to bow on our knees before the Lord Jesus, and the Father sees who what is done in secret will reward you. I hope you've never tried to impress anybody in church by long-winded prayers or by being louder than the person next to you or, or anything like that, because at the end of the day... It's a personal relationship that we have with Jesus. But a lot of times people are quick to say, look what I have done. Look at this prayer meeting that I led. Look at this worship song that I sang. Look at this message that I preached when all along the assignment of sitting at his feet has been replaced with your standing in the limelight. Can I tell you something, church? Humility sits while pride stands. Humility Sits. There's, there's something about not desiring to be seen that the Lord is attracted to. Because he knows the posture of our heart. He knows the attitude and the intention of our being. He knows everything about us and from there he can work with us. Christ is looking for disciples, men and women, who when they walk into a room can be like what was said of Peter and John in Acts 4.13. The Bible says in that passage of scripture, I didn't give it to the guys, but it says that they had been with Jesus. That when you walk into a room, people don't just see your physical appearance. They don't just see, you know, who you are, but they actually know that you've sat with the Lord. They know that the presence of the living God is, is, is hovering on your life. He's in your being. He's all about you so that when you move, he, you know, people see that and they recognize the Lord upon you. But I ask this question, in a culture that stands for something, will you sit with the Savior? People are quick to raise their banner about all the things that they're for or against. While Jesus is looking for the church to sit in front of him, to be yielded to his word, to be yielded and surrendered to what he has to say. The Lord is looking for these people once again. The scripture says of our time spent with him in prayer, he says, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The reward of sitting with Jesus is always Jesus. The reward of sitting with him is always himself. There's a saying that says this, discipleship is more a matter of hungering and thirsting than of knowing and believing. Discipleship 
listen to me carefully, is more a matter of hungering and thirsting than of knowing and believing. And so discipline begins at discipleship. Discipline begins at discipleship. That is, if I'm unwilling to humble myself to be taught, to sit at the feet of Jesus, then I'm too proud to be disciplined. I'm too proud to be disciplined. That definition of discipline means this, to exercise self-control. Amen? To exercise self-control. That means don't order the extra fries. Okay? Amen. Amen, right? Don't order the extra fries. I know you want them. Probably don't need them, though. Amen? Don't order the extra thing. What does he say? To exercise self-control. But the other part of the definition of discipline is actually to punish or correct in love. To punish or correct in love. So the Lord shows us love at times through discipline, but we show our love for him when we have been trained by him. Amen. We show our love back when we've been teachable, when we've been listeners, when we've been those who actually take what he has said and we take it to heart. The first thing the enemy wants you to think, though, is that love and discipline don't belong in the, wrong, in the, in the same sentence. Think about that. The first thing the devil wants you to think is that love and discipline, they sound like two opposites. They, they don't actually coexist. They don't belong in the same sentence because discipline also means instruction. That is, to discipline is to teach and to be disciplined is to be instructed. Okay? It's to be instructed. And so in meaning and practice, that is worlds apart from the word punishment. Amen? One is something that is trying to get you somewhere. The other one is actually a result or a consequence. Punishment is about paying a penalty or compensating for a wrong committed act. Discipline, though, is about making it right. Think about that. Discipline is about making that thing that has gone awry in your life. Some, some part of your life, your being that has been untrained by the Lord. Discipline is actually bringing that back into right standing with God. Amen? How many of you believe that we need that? We, we, we need that. John chapter 15 talks all about that. I'm the vine and you are the branches. He talks very clearly in clear language to, to help us understand. He talks about those wayward branches. And he talks about how he is the vine dresser. He is the one that goes to those branches and he prunes them. Now, the only way you can be pruned by the Lord is by sitting at his feet. It's by remaining in him. Amen? If I abandon his teaching, if I abandon the word, if I, if I retract from the Lord, then guess what? I am not teachable, and therefore I am not able to be disciplined. And therefore those things that are wrong in my life, those things that, that maybe are, are growing out, outward or they're growing the wrong way, those things won't be clipped off by the Lord because I'm not where he's told me to be. If your children run away from the house and they, they go off and they, you know, they, they just take off, there's, you can't communicate with them. You can't reason with them. You can't teach them. They, you know, if every time you try to give your child instruction, they, they put their fingers in their ears and they run into their room and they slam the door, how will they ever learn? Amen? And I believe the Lord is so gracious, he's so loving, he's so merciful, because there's time and time again we fail him you know, on a daily basis. But, but here's the key to all of this is actually just going back and sitting at his feet. 
When you sit at his feet, church, there's so much that happens in that place. You are within his capacity to love you, to wipe off your tears, to, to lift off the shame, the hurt, the guilt, the pain, all the things that, you know, you may have going on in your life. You're within his reach to take care of those things. But when we move outside of that, we say, no, Lord, I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to, you know, let you do what you want to do in my life. And I take a step back that I have removed myself from being able to be disciplined and trained and instructed by the Lord. Discipline is about making things right. It's about getting back on track and it's about settling the matter. And so this whole idea of biblical discipline begins in Hebrews chapter 12. So if you have your Bible, open it there because we're going to cover several verses Hebrews 12 and verse 1 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So the first point that I want to make is this, is discipline means that we are responsible to throw off what hinders. Read it again. What does he say? Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off. He didn't say the Lord was going to pull it off. You have to throw it off. Amen? Some of us get stuck in sin. You're stuck in something. There's something that has been plaguing your life over and over and over. And guess what? You have to throw it off. Amen? The Lord will deliver you. The Lord will give you the strength. The Lord will give you the self-control and the discipline. But guess what? You have to make the choice. You have to come before him and say, Lord, I don't want this anymore from my life. I don't want this to happen in my relationship anymore, Lord. I don't want this addiction or whatever, God, to, to be, you know, have its grip on my life and, and have a hold of my life. It says, let us throw off everything that hinders and what? And the sin that so easily entangles us. So we are responsible to throw it off. We are responsible to get those things off of our life. Running a race, church, is probably pretty hard. How many of you have ever ran a race? Raise your hand if you've ever ran a race. I don't care if it was like 10 feet. You race somebody. All right. If you can imagine with me that running a race is probably pretty hard if you've got extra weight on you. Yes? I am 170 pounds-ish soaking wet. Fully clothed, you know, and, and at 170 pounds, if I put an extra 20 pounds on my back in a backpack and I go run two miles, I will be slower. I won't be able to go as, as long. My knees are going to hurt. My back's going to hurt. I'm going to be sweating like crazy. But if I take off that 20 pounds and I throw off that 20 pounds, guess what? It's going to get a lot easier. I can assure you that. I'll tell you a story quickly. My wife and I, we flew to Green Bay some years ago. And uh, we went to go up there to go watch a game and go visit my dad and stuff. And long story short, we were coming back from Green Bay and we had to pass through the Chicago O'Hare Airport. Now, this is a ginormous airport, one of the biggest in the nation. It's a huge airport. Well, we get off and, and you know, this is in December, so it's like freezing and so there are plane pulls into the driveway of the airport, you know, essentially. And we're, we're in the plane, and they hold us in the plane 
They don't let us get off the plane. Our plane is like looking at the airport. We, we need the plane to get from here to there so that we can actually physically get off the plane. But they had so much ice, so much snow. It was just a mess. So they're cleaning off everything. Well, long story short, we had about an hour and change, you know, uh, time between our, our you know, getting off that flight to board our next flight. So almost the entire hour is going by, and they finally let us off the plane. So I tell Manny, and I'm looking at my watch. I'm like, dude, you know, we're cutting it close. We're probably going to miss the plane. I said, listen, you, you just run. Give me your carry-on. I got my carry-on, and I'm going. I'm going to go stop this plane. So I take off like a crazy man, 170 pounds, soaking wet, with her carry-on and my carry-on. Ah, you know, I'm running through Chicago Air, O'Hare Airport, flying through, pushing people out of the way, and I had to go like, I don't know, like 30 gates away. Like, I'm serious. I probably ran like physically, I feel like to like Trenton. You know, I'm serious. Like, I ran a long ways. I took off, and it was about at least 10 minutes of nonstop, like, ah, excuse me. And I'm pushing people out of the way, and I'm running, and I finally get to the gate, and I get there, and guess what? The door's closed. And I'm trying to call somebody, and I can't even call them. I can't even catch my breath for two seconds to call them, and we ended up missing our flight. Long story short. <laughs> Can I remind you tonight something that I feel is very, very, very important? I was so dead and tired and worn out that for the next 30 minutes until our rescheduled flight, you know, we got one about 30 minutes later. It took me about 30 minutes to catch my breath in the airport, sweating on a freezing day. I was so gassed. I was so worn out because I was carrying something I should have never been carrying in the first place. And I need to make this point tonight. I need to remind you that we don't have the time nor the strength to carry what Jesus nailed to the cross. Some of you are carrying things right now that you need to throw off. I said you don't have the time, you don't have the strength to carry what Jesus nailed to the cross. We must throw it off. He said in his word, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He will give us rest. Ephesians 4.22 says, you were taught with regards to your former way of life to put off your old self. He's saying, take it off. Put it off which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and in holiness. What's he telling us? He's telling us that the old way of living, it needs to go. The old life, the old words that you used to say, the old associations, the people that you may have hung out with, there's certain things that have to go, my friends. They have got to go. You may still have the bottle up above the cabinet. That thing has to go. It has to go. There's things that the Lord is really looking at us. And he's saying, listen, if you want to be delivered, if you want to be free, if you want to have this, this freedom of, of who I am, if you really want to taste and see my goodness, there's something that you have to do also. And that's throw off all of these things that will hinder your life. 
Think for, with, with me just for a moment. Since disciples sit at his feet, this should be a holy reminder. If you could just imagine yourself sitting in front of Jesus, this should be a holy reminder that everything that you do, say, the places you go, the people that you see, the things that you think about, it should remind you every second of the day of the holiness of the God that you serve. If I know that Jesus is ever-present, all-knowing, omniscient, everywhere at all times, he can hear every conversation, he knows everything about my life. If I really keep that at heart and at mind, I will change the way that I live because I know that I am serving and living and before a holy and reverent God. He is worthy, church. He is worthy all of the time. So I ask us this question, what hinders today? I believe there's a lot of things that hinder a lot of people today. I mentioned one of them, social media, apps, movies, television, music, friends, associations. Why would they hinder us? Because I believe oftentimes the enemy will use things like that to lead you into temptation while Jesus will deliver us from evil. The Bible says that he gave us his Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 6, uh, verse 7 rather says, For the Spirit... That God gave us does not make us timid, but it gives us power, it gives us love, and it gives us self-discipline. Self-discipline. It gives us the ability. You don't possess the ability unless you have the Holy Spirit. But with the Holy Spirit, you have the ability to be under control. Amen? To be disciplined. This is the ability and capacity to bring everything under the submission of God, to bring everything under his rule and his reign in your life. You are not designed to carry your sins because this will ultimately result in destruction and in death. But rather what? We have been privileged to carry his Holy Spirit within us, who says in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, it says, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope and the appearing of our glory, uh, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 14 says, Who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own and eager to do what is good. There's a question that I ask us all tonight. Who loves his child more? The father who allows his child to do whatever will harm him or the one who corrects, trains, or even punishes the child to help him learn what is right? See, if you can't be corrected by God, then he's ultimately become your babysitter and not your Lord. He's a stepdad and he's not your father because we'll get to it in a second. But our legitimacy is proved by our sitting at his feet. What does that look like? Likewise, if those in spiritual authority over your life, pastors, teachers, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, Listen to me, friend, if, if they can't correct you, if your pastor can't correct you, not only are you losing your legitimacy with God, but you're proving yourself to be an Ill, illegitimate child and you're not genuine. 
Hebrews 12 and 1. Since therefore we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. It says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, when you've disciplined your life to sit down at the right hand of God, just like Jesus did, then you'll see that he's what's left. Verse 3 says, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Verse 4, in your struggle against sin, he said, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, I believe that many of us, you know, we've all had our own battles with sin. Yes? Can I, can I you know, remove the elephant in the room in that sense? I think sometimes, you know, we all look at each other and nobody wants to be the, the first guy to come to the altar because, you know, there's something wrong in our life. Guess what? Raise your hand if you're not messed up. <laughs> Raise your hand if you've dealt with sin. Come on. I thank God that we serve the one who conquered sin. It's not up to, up to you. It's not up to me to do this on our own. I think we have to be real again. I think we have to be humble enough to say, you know what, Lord? You know, coming to Jesus means that you acknowledge the fact that you can do nothing about your position before God. You acknowledge the very fact that, Lord, I can do nothing about my sins, my transgressions, all of those things, Lord. I must depend on the blood of Jesus. I must depend on the sacrifice that Jesus made for me. Amen? But you may have had to scratch and claw and fight every day for your walk with the Lord, throwing off things that hinder, resisting the enemy. But here's the deal. You've never had to shed your blood. You've never gotten to the point where you've had to shed your own blood. And so know that when your strength to control the situation, when that situation falls short, it's his strength within us that takes over. Amen. Verse 5, Hebrews 12 and 5, he says this, And have you completely forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? He said, it says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you. This is because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastens everyone that he accepts as his son. Verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. You know, I think sometimes we think it's all always the devil's fault. And here scripture is actually teaching us that some of the hardship is actually sent by God. Amen. The Lord allows you to go through some things. Amen. That stretch you, that make you a little uncomfortable, that cause you ultimately to bend your knee and to trust in him. Amen. It goes on to say endure hardship as discipline because God is treating you as his children. He says, for what children are not disciplined by their father? He said, if you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate. You are not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, he says, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. But he said, but how much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? He said, they disciplined us for a little while as though they thought best but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. You see, it's so much bigger. It's so much further than sometimes we grasp that to be. He is talking about our eternal destination with him. He is talking about you actually living with him for eternity. 
But there's things that have to go on in your life. There's disciplines, there's choices, there's decisions that have to be made prior to that actually becoming a reality. There's things that we must do. There's there's a way that we must train ourselves in the Lord so that we can one day see him face to face. Verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, though, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Did you know, church, that struggle is the proof that you have not yet been conquered? You see, if you're still struggling today, guess what? That's not a bad thing. That's not a defeated statement. It's just the fact that you have not yet been conquered. And guess what? You won't be conquered with Jesus on your side. Amen? You can trust in him and he will deliver your life. Trust the work that the Holy Spirit is doing inside of you and keep your focus on Jesus. 1 Corinthians 9 and 25 says this, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. He goes on to say they do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Amen? He said, therefore, I do not run like somebody that's running aimlessly. Do you know what an aimless runner looks like? That's a guy that doesn't stay in his lane. That's a guy that's like all over the track. He's just like running and he has no end point. He doesn't know where he's stopping and where he's going. And he has, he has no target. He's just running in circles, running up and down. He's going wherever. He said, don't run that way. He said, I don't fight like a boxer that's beating the air. You know, a boxer that beats the air is never going to win anything. Amen. That didn't hurt anybody. I can guarantee you. And sometimes we think that, you know, we're Christian and we're all holier than thou and we're all believers and this and that. And your faith is actually going nowhere and it's taking you nowhere. Because you're fighting, you know, things that that aren't even, you know, the, the principalities of darkness. You're fighting yourself half the time. He's teaching us something here. He's saying, I don't fight like somebody that's beating the air. He said, I strike a blow to my body and I make it a slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. He's showing us something that's very critical, that's very, I believe it's very key. Because there's a lot of things that we do in the, in the sphere of church culture that, guess what, Jesus never told us to do. And there's a lot of things that we get involved with in the sphere of church culture that, guess what? It's just like you're beating the air. You're expending all this energy. You're doing all this, you know, all these kinds of things. And the end result is nothing. The end result is nothing. The Lord is looking for us, church, to be disciplined in our life towards him. Long ago, there was this Chinese man, and he began... This career where he was making bell stands. I don't know if you've ever seen in China, but they have these big gongs and and bells. And he was making these stands that these huge bronze bells they hung from in these temples. And so this man, he was prized and he was celebrated because he made the most elaborate, enduring stands in the entire region. And no other person could make a, a stand with such strength, with such beauty, such craftsmanship. And his reputation it had grown vast and his skill was in high demand. And so one day they celebrated this woodcarver and, and you know, they, they asked him this. They said, please tell us the secret of your success. Tell us why you are the best at this and nobody else comes close to what you do. And he replied this. He said, 
Long before I start making and carving the bell stand, I go into the forest to do the work before the work. He said, I look at all of the hundreds of trees to find the ideal tree already formed by God to become a bell stand. I look for the boughs of the tree to be massive and strong and already shaped. He said, and it takes a long time to find the right tree. He said, but without doing the work before the work, I could not do what I have accomplished. I believe, church, it's time for us to do the work before the work. There's a lot of us that want to reach this world for Jesus. Amen. How many of you want to reach friends and family for the Lord? Amen. I believe there's many of us that want to do great things, great exploits for the Lord. There's, there's things that the Lord has put in our heart. You know that you're called to do something for the, for the Lord and all these kinds of things. But here's the deal. We have to do the work before the work because some of us barely know who Jesus is. Some of us barely understand who he is. Some of you might be called to ministry, to preach, to teach, to lead others in worship. But just because you're called to lead, it does not mean that you are ready. Just because we may have a position, a calling, something that the Lord is wanting to cultivate in our life, it doesn't mean that we are ready to release it to the world. Because the work before the work must happen. It must happen. I have to remind us tonight that Jesus did not appear out of nowhere teaching and preaching and, and you know, performing signs, wonders, and miracles. Did you know that? Jesus wasn't just, you know, born into the world and all of a sudden, boom, it was just miracle after miracle and he was doing all of these things. But the Bible says and teaches that before Jesus began his earthly ministry that he'd often be found in the temple, sitting amongst the temple leaders, asking questions and listening to what they had to say. Jesus, the Savior of the world, he sat to listen. He sat to be taught. He sat to hear what people had to say. Luke 2.52 proves it, and the Bible says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and in favor with man. So Jesus exemplified doing the work before the work. Why? Because he understood the discipline necessary before his ministry began. Do you know, church, that Jesus spent 30 years in preparation for three and a half years of ministry? Jesus. And nowadays we have it backwards, amen? Some of us won't pray 30 seconds for our food, but yet we want the glory of God to be all over our life. Amen. We want God to use us for great exploits, but yet we never sit in front of him. We never talk to him. We think because we got a few, memor- a few verses memorized in the back of our pocket, you know, that we know and we can go ahead and we're qualified and there's all these things. But here's the deal. Your race will refine your focus. What you know is ahead of you, it will discipline you and it will cause you to come to a place where you will focus your faith, your energy, all of those things, your dedication, your willingness, your commitment to sit before the one who is worthy, to give complete surrender to Jesus. This is so necessary. And so I'll give you two things quickly tonight, two areas that you must be disciplined in. Number one is this, prayer. How many of you pray today? Raise your hand. Praise God. 
How many of you know that you could pray more than we do? Amen. If your end result of your time in prayer is to just, like, be done with it, then you haven't really prayed. Because I believe the end result of being in prayer, actually listening to the Lord, feeling his heartbeat, hearing him speak to your heart should actually be a place that you don't actually want to leave. Because I know when I've sat in front of him, I've listened, I've heard it, I've felt his hand, his presence upon my life. I actually don't want to leave that place. It's hard sometimes to pick yourself up from that presence to know how good he actually is. If you ever want to know how serious the Lord takes prayer, just look at the scripture that teaches us that he prayed and he fasted for 40 days before his ministry began. Like I said, some of us might not pray 40 seconds for our food. But there's a lifeline that is connected when you spend time in prayer before the Lord. I believe if we want to see the miraculous, then we have to sit before the miracle worker. Amen? I believe if we want to see the Lord do things in and through our life and upon us and all these kinds of things, we actually have to sit before him. I think it's important to understand this. We need to let the Lord work in our life on his time. Amen. On his time. Not before, not jumping into things that he didn't ask you to do. Not supposing just because it has the name of Jesus on it that you're supposed to say it or do it. There's a time and a place for everything. Amen? And there's a time where the Lord will use your life. And there's a time where the Lord will, you know, place you in the place that he wants to place you and, and have all these things happen in your life. But here's the deal. We, we cannot get ahead of where the Lord wants us to be. We must sit. We must wait. Oswald Chambers said something really interesting. He said, prayer is often a, a temptation to bank on a miracle of God instead of on a moral issue. And he goes on to explain it this way. He said, in other words, it's much easier to ask God to do my work than it is to do it myself. Oh, Lord, advance me to this position in your kingdom. He's like, you ain't ready. Oh, but Lord, just take me now. Just fast forward me to the end, to when I graduate. Just fast forward me, God, to, to when, you know, these things that, you know, you told me to do in the first place. Just, just get me through all that without me actually having done it. That's what he's saying. He's saying prayer is often the temptation to bank on a miracle. Can you just, like, erase the whole process part, Lord, and just get me to the finish line? Can I tell you something, church? We need to actually be more in love with the process than we are with the intended purpose. Because he's the one that's guiding you and leading you every single day until you get there. He's the one that's walking you hand by hand and, and in the fits and in the screaming and in the tiredness and in the, all the things that you go through when you're trying to get from A to B in the Lord in the kingdom. He's the one who's actually with you every, every, every step 
of the way. We need to get back to sitting before the Lord in this secret place and waiting until he answers. I'm going to say this because I believe this generation needs to hear it. We need to sit and wait on the Lord again. Sit and wait on the Lord. Don't get up and do because there's an opportunity present. We need to sit and wait until he's told us what to do. We need to get back to not just speaking to him in prayer, but staying until he answers. More often than not, we just give God our list, and then we leave. God, I come before you because there's the list, and then we leave. That was never the intended purpose of prayer. The intended purpose was to commune with the living God, to know him. And for him to know who you are. D.L. Moody said this, every great movement of God can be traced back to a kneeling figure. It can be traced back to somebody that was there in prayer. Charles Spurgeon said that prayer is the natural outgushing of a soul in communion with God. This is what the Lord is looking for from our life. And the second area that we need to be disciplined in is the word. We need to be disciplined in the word. How many of you brought your Bibles tonight? I'll say it again. We need to be disciplined in the word. Amen? I pray that your Bible would be more marked up than your phone. Amen. Right? Your phone screen probably looks shot. It's probably pretty scratched and worn out and it's got fingerprints all over it. But what does your Bible look like? Amen. Oh, Pastor Duke, you're cutting deep. You know, it's almost eight. You know, it's, it's getting late. You know, it's getting towards the end. But here, I have to tell you the truth. Yes? Amen? We need to know the word of God for ourselves because here's the deal. I'm grateful for technology, but I will tell you from this, from the pulpit, and Pastor will tell you he'll echo the same sentiment. Don't take some online preacher's word for it. And the church said, amen. Why? Because he's speaking to you from this place directly to yourself. Some of us are more inclined to pop on a YouTube video and listen to some dude that you don't even know. You don't know the fruit of his life. You don't know the testimony of his life. You don't know anything about this guy, but yet he's speaking into your soul. And he'll come up with some whack statement or whatever. That's something that's completely, you know, uh, you know, biblically illiterate. And it has nothing to do with what the truth of the word of God says. But because it sounds nice or it, or it feels good or whatever, it rings good on our ear. We just ingest it thinking that it is the whole word of God. I need to remind us tonight something, church. Truth is a person named Jesus Christ. And his Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. Amen. And his word is the truth. John 16 and 13 says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth and he will not speak on his own. Many men speak on their own. They're not speaking under the influence and the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, he will not speak on his own. He only speaks on what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come so living without this connection will leave you lied to living without you know living in the word for yourself it will leave you lied to it will leave you deceived it will leave you in a place because you'll hear somebody else say it and all of a sudden you think that it's true 
It, this is really important to get because I believe this generation needs to stop scrolling through their feed and getting fed by others when Jesus wants you to be on your knees and be fed by his Holy Spirit and his word. Amen. The Bible still works, church. Amen. I'll say that again. The Bible is still the truth. Amen. The Bible still alive and well. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4 that it is alive and well. His word is speaking. It's active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It can divide the bone from the marrow, the soul from the spirit. His word is active. It's powerful. And it is alive, church. How many of you love leftovers? Raise your hand. How many of you have Thanksgiving leftovers the last couple days? Yes? Hopefully you've demolished your entire turkey. We have pretty much. It's almost gone. And I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'll let you go. But there's nothing like the meal when it's freshly prepared. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like when it comes right off the grill, right out of the oven. It's put on your plate. It's hot. It's fresh. It's ready. And you devour it. Took you three hours to prepare a Thanksgiving, you know, meal, and you devour it in like 10 minutes. But I believe that it's more nourished. It's just, it's better tasting. You receive it well when it's fresh out of the, the grill, off the plate. And there's something that happens when there's time that goes by and it's reheated. Then you may reheat it again and then whatever, and it loses it. It doesn't have the same flavor. It doesn't have the same taste. Years ago, I shared this story with the young adults, and I'll I'll share it really quickly. I was going to go out with my cousin one night. My mom made me some food. I said, hold on. Before we go, let me finish my food. So I'm eating my food, and I had some chicken and rice and whatever else there was there. And I'm eating this piece of chicken. And how many of you have ever felt that, like, really hard, ugly, gross piece of chicken? You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? You know, that little hard thing. And I was like, oh, wow. I spit it out, and I put it on the side of my plate. My cousin walks up. He goes, hey, man, what are you eating? And he just goes, and he reaches onto my plate, and he grabs it. I have my mouth full of chicken and rice. And I'm like. And he pops this already chewed piece of cartilage from a chicken in his mouth. And he goes. And he's looking at me. And I'm like, dude, I can't. Like, I mean, he didn't even give me a chance to, like, tell him, like, dude, don't eat that. And he spits it out. And he's just completely grossed out by the whole list. He was like, oh, man, what, you know, what was that? And, and I'm looking at him. I'm going like, dude. Why would you eat that thing? Like, it was, it was literally on the edge of my plate. It was, it was right there. It was already chewed. And what's crazy about that story, you know, I, I know it's funny and gross at the same time, but here's the thing is we've heard people preach things or we've heard people say things and we've heard catchy phrases come out and we think that it's true. And the reality of it is, is most of the time we just ingested already chewed food. It's flavorless, it has no nutrition, it has no substance, and somehow we think that we'll survive that way. 
Somehow we think that we're, gonna, we're actually going to maintain our discipline in God. We're going to be strong Christians, strong believers and all this. And this happens over and over and over again. And you're still empty and you're still lied to. You're still deceived. You're still broken. You're still ashamed. You may still be bound by something. And it would seem almost as if the fullness of Christ isn't that full because the truth that you fed on was actually a lie. The substance of Christ didn't exist in it. In the truth of his holiness, it was compromised and it was impartial. And here's the deal. Unless we open the word for ourselves, then and only then will you receive daily bread, my friends. Then and only then will you receive the manna from heaven that will sustain your life, that will nourish your life, that will give your life everything that it needs so that it can remain, so that it can go on in the Lord. But this is why we see a lot of people fall away because guess what? They're not being fed by the word of God. And when the enemy comes into their life and he strikes with destruction or, or some kind of thing, some lie in their life, they fall away time and time again because they have not been nourished through the word of God. Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. It's really, really important that we understand that when we are sitting in front of him, we can hear him that much better. When you've got the word of God, anywhere you take this church, Jesus is sitting in front of you. He is sitting with you. Amen. He's present when you open this. He's there. He's listening. He, he's sharing his heart with you. He's tra- changing your life. He's transforming you in that moment when you open this word. And he's looking for us again to, to Blow the dust off our Bible and and get back in there and actually read what he has to say to us. Because guess what? When his word speaks, the Bible says that his words are life and they are spirit. It will transform you when you open that and you listen to what the Lord has to say. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. Join us next time for another uplifting message. If you'd like to support this ministry and the reaching out of others, you have the opportunity to give at rockofagesaog.org give.